everybody. This is Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. Uh, my name is Tom. And my name is Evan. Welcome to our new episode. Hey, uh, hey. Hope you're all doing well. On, on this, this beautiful, uh, beautiful morning. Yes. Uh, anyway, it is a beautiful morning right now when we are recording the podcast. Yes, I hope it's uh, equally good wherever you are and you're enjoying yeah. whatever remains of this weird summer. It, fe- it feels like the Lord looked down and he switched on the hot weather and then he just walked away. It's way too hot for me. Yes, I heard it was, what was it, 30, in the 30s in, in the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, it was in the 30s, yeah. It was, um, it is, still is really hot. But, um, anyway, and no one has aircon. Uh, no, well, I definitely don't have an aircon. I'm just a poor student, so I can't afford it. Yeah, exactly. What are you going to talk about t- this week, Tom? For your uh, sure. So today I have prepared one scientific news and I have a paper that describes a new dominant form of SARS-CoV-2 that can put some light why we see so much new cases coming up. Yeah, sounds cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yourself? And for me, I'm going to talk about a little bit about uh, this new mRNA vaccine that's gone into phase three clinical trials. It's being uh, developed by this company, Moderna, in America. And I just wanted to kind of give a bit more light on that uh, company and see what they're doing um, and be a bit skeptical, I suppose, in a way of how <laughs> it's going. Uh, yeah. And today on our, on our third episode, we have a guest speaker. We want very to, excited. Very excited. His name is John. Uh, he's going to talk about the whole uh, what was going on with the launch of rockets to Mars by uh, the US, by NASA in Japan and in the Middle East and China. And just kind of give to give more detail about what's going on uh, for us, maybe yeah. non, non, I don't know, non-space people. No um, experts. <laughs> Yeah, non-space experts. And that way, that is so because this is one of the things we wanted to try and do, like incorporate other pieces of science. So yeah, True. it should be should be exciting. Hope you enjoy it. I looked it up short, uh, quickly, uh, the Mars 2020, and uh, I'm glad John's going to be here to maybe explain a f- few things because yeah. uh, it's overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, how are you, how, any, any other uh, rants this week, Tom? Uh, I got angry at loads of things uh, <laughs> what really gets my blood boiling um was tiktokers i j- i can't deal with that. i just don't understand i can't uh the other thing was twitter i i think i can't be on twitter <laughs> as well it's just it's a bunch of people complaining about stuff and just rather than complaining just get better you know yeah. just get better and the, th- the third thing was uh, people exploiting Kanye's Kanye West mental problems as a cheap joke. I think yeah. there's nothing funny about men p- having clear psychological uh, problems yeah. and it's not something to be laughed at. Um, even I can see that and I am three likes away on Instagram from becoming a full redneck. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> but and, it's kind of sad uh, like I just I uh, I I cuz I know I wish that someone could be there like I suppose it's so hard to control someone who's having a maybe a manic episode, but wish there was had he had family or friends who could like try and just Well I think his I think his wife is it's great. It's kind of an old story, but like I just remember when he went on this on this rant at his rally or whatever it was that he he had as a part of his presidential yeah. campaign. 
and just I saw people taking cheap shots at him uh, yeah. because he just said multiple different controversial things at that at this yeah. rally, and I just I, it's nothing to be laughed at. Like no. he's sick, you know. Yeah. You like you don't you don't laugh at people with cancer and stuff like that. And yeah. just like his condition is nothing else but sick but sickness. Yeah, I hope people might make people think, but I don't think anyone really on Twitter ever really learns. No. It's a completely different, uh, completely different animal. It's kind of like uh, uh, I heard this. I heard this on um, the Graham Norton show. It was like it's how Twitter's almost like you know when you in your car and there's other drivers and you just get so annoyed and mm. angry. It's like you publish everything you say about everyone and then everyone else you kind of attract everyone else and you just yeah. climb on on someone. It's just an echo chamber and like yeah. people just say something and they just you know pat pat themselves on the back <laughs> and support each other in this yeah. madness yeah well what actually before before we go into yeah. the science news as well i wanted to follow up on this last week uh so you were saying you felt hella celtic as you said yes uh yes. so i have found this quiz it was actually on twitter ironically okay uh, <laughs> i want to get you to the test this let's see this if you're a true celtic man or not oh my god okay let's do this so I don't know if you know, so we have our national broadcast for the news at six o'clock, mm-hmm. but it's always officially at six, one minute past six. Mm-hmm. So do you know why uh, the six o'clock news starts one minute past six? Something to do with tea? No. Biscuits? No. God. Then I don't know. What uh, is it? <laughs> one. First question wrong. It's the, yeah. Ange- the Angelus. So basically it's... Um, we base it's like a reflection for a minute at six it's like a religious thing have you ever seen it no you obviously <laughs> no, never watched no i only i only have been on the six o'clock news i've never watched <laughs> the six o'clock news okay second question what's the day after christmas called boxing day oh steven's day <laughs> you said the boxing day first <laughs> second question wrong no, it was correct. <laughs> no, you said boxing. I c- don't give you the, oh, don't give you the points. Okay, I deserve the point. <laughs> this is the. I'll give you this is the last question. Okay. Since you're a proper dub, as they as you kind of call yourself. Yes. And a proper dub would know this. <laughs> uh, what and where is Hill Sixteen? I have no idea. <laughs> What is Hill 16? <laughs> it's in Crow Park. It's uh, uh, in Dublin. So basically uh, when they play Gaelic, that's where all the Dublin fans go. Hill 16. I've never been to Crow Park. So three hours, three wrong. What no, do you think guys middle, think? I got what, the middle one No, right. I don't think so. You said boxed it first. Oh, what do you think it. guys? Are, is Tom a true, true Irishman or not? What other questions should I ask him? Let us know on, uh, on Instagram. Skeptically inclined, Twitter at skeptically I. And I'm a man without the country now. So on that note, we can go into the headlines. What what did you find? So what, I'm gonna start headlines? with. Um, I was uh, I was pitched this paper. Uh, COVID nineteen attacks the uh, one beta chain of hemoglobin and captures the porphyrin to inhibit human heme metabolism. Uh, basically, the paper that looks how COVID nineteen affects uh, hemoglobin. Yeah, and they got it, and they, it's, it was quite huge paper. Uh, shout out to Lucy; she sent it to me. It was a quite big paper, and there was loads of computational work and kind of a uh, uh, yeah, computational work. 
and I was like, oh my God, how am I gonna, how am I gonna read this? And, but luckily someone has already responded to that paper and uh, they pointed out multiple flaws in this paper, how like it was, how they kind of overlooked certain things and they jumped to conclusions uh, very quickly. So basically the effect of COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 on hemoglobin is not as huge as they claim in this paper and I was getting headache trying to read it and understand it. I think it was way what too did much they say? chemistry. What, they said that it's not as bad. Uh, no, so in the paper, I think they claim that SARS-CoV-2 also affects the hemoglobin yeah. in some way, like in the negative way. And they make loads of this kind of uh, 3D structures using different software and they try to prove okay. the point. And then uh, the, the rebuttal paper uh, <laughs> said rebuttal. that they said that no experimental evidence is provided to support any of the conclusions. The, they just, and they say that the, they jumped the, the conclusions they conducted from the results are like, they just, they don't see connection. So yeah, it was, it was, the paper wasn't great, but if I were to read it by myself, I don't think I would pick all of these things up you know yeah so um it's nice that then um someone had that a there rebuttal. are other people yeah that there are other people who who um who also look f look out for these things so yeah there's many papers published and as you know not all of them are great so this one kind of uh this one was not great and um we are i'm happy to see that other people um responded to it okay nice yeah yeah so on other news, it was the, uh, I'm sure everyone heard about the Russian vaccine that mm -hmm. uh, Putin is now putting into use. So mm -hmm. uh, I kind of wanted to see what was going on, what 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 has been published so far, just a few details. Um, they're very, it's still very limited what is known. And yeah, there's a, definitely a lot of reasons to be skeptical. It was announced on Tuesday, right? Tuesday, yeah. He said he yeah. had given it to his daughter. Um, <laughs> but then again, it's, it doesn't say a lot because no, we don't know anything about his daughter. I, I, I was seeing, I watched um, Trevor Noah. He was saying how if Trump had given it to his daughter, you know it's definitely okay. Whereas if he had given it to like Eric, he'd be like, okay, something's definitely something's not right. Not yeah. Um, so yeah, the vaccine is called Sputnik Five. Yeah, again, reference the Soviet Union satellite. Um, they still have not conducted... They, ha they say they have conducted months of human trials, but they have yet to publish any data. Exactly. Uh, and they still have not began phase three trials before the announcement. So uh, just so people know why phase three trials are important, it's because it's used in really large populations and you want to learn about the safety and efficacy especially in the typical patient who's going to use it and especially you want to use it in large populations because if the drug or the vaccine has a rare and devastating side effect you won't really see it in phase two you'll only see it in phase three because it's a larger population yeah so that's why it's super important to have a phase three trial and maybe just to mention on top of what you said um i i, I managed to find that the whole vaccine it's it's a it's adenovirus based yeah i see and yeah. um yeah and they just added uh sars-cov-2 genes that code for the spike protein so it's yet another attempt to develop vaccine towards the mm. spike spike protein they said like that not a single participant of the current clinical trial got infected with covid after being administered with the vaccine but uh it's not really clear if this was the best measurement to use i don't know 
yeah. to measure its success. It was supposed well, that's just one of the things you want to measure. Um, but the, there was a guy, a former commissioner of the US FDA, said that the number of people uh, that the vaccine had been tested on was just the equivalent of a phase one trial, which is just healthy people in a really like small population. Yeah. Uh, well, the WHO is not really convinced. No, um, I would no. be surprised. Um, and even exactly. the Philippine Philippines president Duarte, he said he was publicly willing to volunteer at future trials. So I say let him let him go for it. Yeah. But for now, I think it's not going to be approved by regulations in the EU or US. So I don't think uh, we have to worry too much yet. I, as much as I believe in vaccines, I wouldn't like to get injected with this uh, with this vaccine. And if some uh, and let me tell you, let me tell you something now. If this vaccine is going to go south and people like going to have going to have this all of these adverse effect to this, uh, this is just going to add fuel to the fire. That is the anti yeah, so this true. Is, that's what it's going to be, you know, and like this is the this is the worst time when we need something like this to happen. Yeah, we need yeah. we need uh, to be fair vaccines to, tested. To yeah. be fair, I'd say Russia must probably lie about it anyways. And they'd be like, oh, it was perfect. There was no problems. Uh, and I'd say they won't let much leaks out uh, of how how maybe bad it is. So hopefully, well, hopefully nothing bad happens that it no, will have a yeah. serious implications for the rest of uh, <laughs> other vaccines being developed. Uh, fair play to uh, Vladimir's daughter for <laughs> yeah. doing this. Uh, Willingly. Gal, keep up the good work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Our prayers are with you. Yeah, exactly. Do you have any other news you wanted to do? Yes, I have just uh, one news that uh, I was really exciting when I found this. And uh, the title of it is Some Humans Are Carrying DNA from Unknown Ancient, ancient Ancestor. Oh. So um, that's pretty cool. That's they, like, I think we all... Well, that, that's very like... That seems to be pretty much well accepted now, isn't it? Well, yeah, well, it's well accepted that uh, we were making love with Neanderthals <laughs> yeah. and Denisovas people. So there are like traces of the of our DNA, of their DNA in our genome and the Homo sapiens DNA in their genome. Yeah. Uh, but now they, this is what uh, sorry, can I just, this is what parents say when two different human species love each other. They make yeah. love. <laughs> they make love. <laughs> and this, this is, is where we happens. come from. <laughs> exactly. But now they found a fraction, uh, they found this sequence that they couldn't really trace it back. Uh, they didn't know where it was originating from. And the idea was that it could have been Homo erectus, which is an archaic hominoid, hominoid. And we did not think that we, scientists did not think that it was possible for Homo sapiens to, to have sex with Homo erectus. And uh, he couldn't get erect, was it? <laughs> Uh, no, because uh, uh, yeah, they just thought it was just the timelines didn't really overlap. Oh, right. um, the way they found it, they used an algorithm that looks for recombination events where two sets of chrom chromosomes are mixed together, and this enables scientists to go back in time long way. And uh, fifteen percent of this mysterious super archaic region of DNA was found in the Denisova genome and it's still circulating in humans. So they found oh. it in Denisovas and then they found it in humans and they think it's, uh, it could be Homo, homo erectus. Oh. And this also, this also puts another spin on the um, out of Africa model of migration of Homo sapiens. 
the inbreeding between humans and Neanderthals because of this kind of findings pushed back to 200 between 200,000 to 300,000 years ago. So it's even further than they uh, than they thought at the start. So it's really so when I think they at the start they they thought that ancient Homo sapiens emphasized the amount of inbreeding that was happening across the centuries, way before the major mass migration of modern human ancestors out of Africa some fifty thousand years ago. So they so were they were they were missing way la- like way further back. Yeah, than, than they thought. Than they thought before yeah. humans even. Um, yeah modern day humans even evolved yeah so the thing is the homo sapiens we look the way we look before we start thinking the way we think so there's it's not like once we start looking like homo sapiens our brains were already at the same level as they are now yeah uh they were like the the, the brain the, the development of brain and consciousness you can't you can't really study that because brains don't fossilize but um yeah it's just another kind of uh another piece of puzzle pushing everything a little bit back uh, than we have already thought and um, yeah it's interesting how uh, promiscuous we were we <laughs> we were looking at neanderthals denisovas then apparently homo erectus was game as well so you know we just like damn damn boy <laughs> <laughs> gotta get my genome everywhere <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gotta spread that no yeah it's, it's cool it's like a, it is, really is like a jigsaw puzzle um, so so i only i only look at the um, I only scanned the paper, but it seems really interesting. So, <clears throat> so I uh, I've printed it and I will read it in my free time. Yeah. Uh, just to kind of know a little bit more about it. And continue the saga between. Yes. Uh, in your epic quest to learn I more wa- about how we are, where we are. Exactly. I want to know why we are this way and how we are this way, and you know, I think we can learn a lot from past. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I th- and on that note, I think we'll just go into the main, our main stories then, will we? I think so, yeah. Let's uh, do this. That's good cover of the science news, I think, this week. So, Tom, you were looking at a new virus um, mutation mm-hmm. in coronavirus uh, yes. that made it more pathogenic. Is that what you were saying? more infectious, infectious not necessarily pathogenic i think we have to be very careful with how we phrase these things because that can lead to further confusion okay. so i don't know if you noticed evan but there is a spike of coronavirus infections going across yeah. the europe and i think across the world right yeah it seems in australia it's particularly like they were doing well and then it just completely went back mm-hmm. up and yeah everywhere in europe now is getting like a an increase i don't think it's i don't think a second wave is right because it's not really ever gone down and then come back up again it's just kind of leveled off and then it's kind of gone back up yeah so um, yeah so we yeah so you uh so it is evident and the places like spain are back again yeah uh, uh, affected it kind of started in the region of catalonia and it spread it more towards the center and i know from my secret uh, sources that madrid <laughs> is way worse than they trying to show it over in the internet or over in the media so i think this is like i thought i thought this paper is is suitable to and kind might, of address these issues yeah, i might give some answers yeah it might give some answers and um basically uh, it talks about a new dominant for new dominant form of SARS-CoV-2 that uh, hypothetically could re- could lead to the higher infect- infectivity rate mm. and if this is a muta- if this is a mutation in the virus 
which is actually traced to the spike protein that could have further implications with the vaccines because as you know all of the most of the vaccines yeah. are developing to recognize the, the spike proteins the spike protein exactly so just a quick uh, recap for people who have forgot uh, how viruses can mutate so we have the antigenic shift and antigenic drift and in the case of SARS-CoV-2 we are dealing with antigenic drift where uh, there is accumulation of mutations and under the under the selective pressure the more uh, advantages mutation are being hold, uh, retained yeah. and therefore the virus is changing so uh, this is what we're dealing with and it's just because i think viruses just have naturally a lot of mutations they were saying maybe that maybe this coronavirus mightn't be as much mutagenic but maybe yeah uh, they they mentioned that the um, well, we, I've, I've also said it, uh, I think, last time that there is loads of uh, overlapping consensus between SARS-CoV-2 and SARS-CoV-1 and the yeah. common cold viruses. So it is a sort of indicative that it's not rapidly mutating and changing virus, and it does hold on uh, to certain, uh, uh, certain aspects of a sequence. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so I already mentioned that this mutation could... First of all, this mutation is thought to affect the increased rate of infectivity. It also could affect the uh, the vaccines because of it. It is located in the uh, in the uh, in the spike protein. And what is the significance of identifying identifying mutations leading to a? So it's a single it's a single amino acid change. Yeah. And on top of resistance to developing vaccines, it can also cause development uh, or development of resistance to antibodies. Uh, it could also cause alteration in the host species susceptibility and it also can cause uh, increased expression levels so it's not what it does but these are the they could be the consequences of uh, of yeah. single amino acid mutations so they uh, the way they studied this they compared a sequences of coronavirus before march uh, prior to march 1 and after march 21st and uh, they they aligned 28,500 of sequences. These are sequences collected from different regions across the world. Yeah. And you get a chance to kind of align them and look at, and look at what, what's happening. You basically happening. compare them at compare genetic, them. Yeah. genetic level. And they had to set a threshold. They set the threshold at 0.3% difference from the original Wuhan sequence. So the original SARS-CoV sequence is called Wuhan sequence because that's where it emerged from. And they, they were comparing, is there any difference from the new sequences coming in? And they observed that the first amino acid variant that stands out was D614G, which is aspartic acid substitute for glycine. So this is the amino acid uh, change. Yeah. From now on, I'm going to be referring to it as uh, D614, which is the original or uh, G614, which is the new version. Okay. And um, so, as I said, the first time this mutation was picked up in March, and it was rare, rare uh, with rare in increasing trend in the Europe, and now it is referred to as clade G because there are three other mutations uh, Based on, on, the, this. on the same haplotype. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's easier to identify. So you're not only tracing one mutation, you have four mutations that, uh, that occur together, and this is how you can trace the spread of this new so the spread it, of this were, new virus. Did they pick that new variant up? Was it in Italy? Because I heard that it was initially that uh, they thought it might have become more infective. 
or do you, you know you're very good so uh, the ancestral form of this haplotype was find uh, was found in china and germany in january yeah but the earliest full haplotype was detected in italy in, fe in february mm. so this is where they uh this is where they um they found it for the first time and i highlighted for myself the uh oh yeah I have it here in the paper. So they ha they said two statistical analysis to uh, first the null hypothesis was the fraction of the D614 uh, versus G614 sequence did not change and when they when they did the analysis there was a statistical significance throughout uh, on the on the level of the continent uh, country and they did uh, inside uh, America they did on the base of different states and yeah. uh, it was a majority of it there was a statistical significance that the uh, g614 is the uh, is the dominant form oh, okay. and uh, and i have uh, i they, they create beautiful graphs and you can see if you look at this paper you can see that in asia up to the march 14 uh, the the original uh, its predominant version and then slowly starting from march there is a there is a more and more and more of the G614 uh, oh. variant, and you can observe that throughout uh, Europe, North America, South America, and it, what it looks like Africa is completely dominated by the G614. Yeah, yeah. And the another another hypothesis they set up was testing the null hypothesis that this fraction does not change over time, and the alternative hypothesis was that it does changes over time. And it was proven as well that uh, it starts crawling up and then it just completely overtakes in the times of a of, of couple of weeks. The G614 yeah. was the dominant form. So now, we, so now we know that there is this new form of coronavirus. But like, what does it really mean? So the researchers in this paper, they thought that it could potentially be associated with the higher viral loads but not in the disease severity this is like so weird so there is more virus uh. but like it doesn't really cause more severe symptoms yeah um yeah. and they they base this uh they base the higher viral load on the you know the ct on the pcr when you do uh qpcr yeah, you get yeah. the ct values so basically uh, i think maybe for people when so one of the diagnoses is true pcr where you look at the the sequence and you want to amplify it up and then when you get a certain threshold of okay that once you hit a certain threshold that means that the the virus is present in the sample and that yes. you are positive you're um, positive so basically if you're below the threshold then you're negative because it's it's not enough of the the gene material there to amplify up yeah so in people who are positive they observed that the people who are most likely positive with the uh, with the G614 they have a lower CT value lower CT values <laughs> sorry Say that again I'm, I'm, they have lower CT values compared to the compared to the uh, D614 and is so this take, like significant well, this was statistically significant was yeah, it yeah uh, wow. it was although i i don't think this is the best way yeah it just this. seems because i don't think it's um i don't can you can you make uh can you make the correlation that oh because it's an increased ct value that is an increased load is that something you can make I think well the uh, I presume the, because there's more virus there, so that it, it it's easier that to is amplify. The claim. Up. That is the claim. But that I, they have more. You have okay. more virus. There's more virus inside of you, 
because it uh, it replicates faster or there's oh, a high okay. infectivity rate and therefore you need the lower CTs to amplify to the same uh, threshold as you uh, as you would need for the D614 you would need more CT values to get the same thing yeah. the same readout so that's why they claim there is a uh, there is a higher viral load for yeah. the G614 but again there's n they didn't observe increase in disease severity yeah. so because you would you think have... obviously yeah, yeah more virus then it'd be more likely to be severe but i suppose yeah. it doesn't we don't we can't make that claim really no. it's it's usually it is like so much else that can contribute to the disease severity as you were saying last week like immune yeah. response and um, all this kind of other stuff so. And they also in the introduction in this paper, they, they mentioned the mortality of SARS-CoV and they just, and they gave this huge bracket of 0.8% to 14% of mortality rate. And I'm just like, this is such a huge bracket. Like, what, less sorry, than I don't, I don't understand. What does, what were they trying to say with the mortality rate? So that it where was, they were, where they were describing the coronavirus. And they, they, as usually, they compare the mortality rates of this of the original SARS from 2003, yeah. the MERS, and now the coronavirus. And for SARS, I think it was like 10%. From MERS, it was 13% or something like that. And then for coronavirus, they just throw at you like this, oh, we estimate the mortality <laughs> to be between 0.8% to 14%. Oh, okay, I'll get it's you It's just now. like, come on. Like that doesn't narrow it down at all. It doesn't narrow it down at all. And then another thing that they also said in the introduction that I think we have shown is not to be true. They said that humans have no direct immunological experience with SARS-CoV-2. But like, now we know that we do because we do have, there is certain population of people that have immune system prone to recognize SARS-CoV-2 mm. due to either previous exposure to SARS virus or to through the common cold. Yeah. So, you know, you know, it was uh, it was interesting in relation to that point. Um, they were saying that one of the reasons like they think kids compared to adults might not ha go be a severe uh, reaction to co coronavirus is because um, when adults like have had previous exposure to other coronaviruses decades earlier mm -hmm. and that they think that maybe the adult immune system might think this new coronavirus is a previous threat mm -hmm. uh, and then it tries to produce the response it would to that the previous coronavirus but not to the new one and it get this gives this abnormal response and this is actually there's a it's a known phenomenon it's called uh, uh, original antigenic sin and you actually see okay. it for other infectious disease such as dengue fever dengue mm -hmm. fever yeah that could be a reason why some people might have a a, a bad worse immune response to COVID-19 because the body doesn't realize it's something different after they can't use their use the usual immune response that they had to other coronaviruses so but, so their immune system produces response thinking this is some sort of old type of yeah coronavirus. that's what they reckon yeah because it's it's something that like has happened it does happen in other diseases so maybe oh, might okay. be that could be why um, oh, okay okay and then obviously that that doesn't work because it's a completely different yeah strain. i think so okay. this is what yeah. a hypothesis now mm. and just okay and they also did uh in this paper they also did a test to show uh to kind of test this higher in infectious rate of the virus 
But again, I just I don't I don't like the way they they, they did it. They quantified the infectious teeters of pseudotyped viruses. So they took a, they took like a virus and they introduced the uh, the aspects of coronavirus into that vi the other virus, like an adenovirus or something like that. I think they used in here uh, VSV, which stands for Single Cyclovesicular Stomatitis Virus. And they also used lentiviral particles. And they injected these, they engineered these viruses to express uh, the S protein, uh, the, the original D614 form, and the mutated GC. Uh, D614 and the mutated G614. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't true coronavirus. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was engineered yeah, to have yeah. these parts, and uh, I think they infected hex cells, which yeah. hex cells are human embryonic kidney cells. Yeah. And and they just measured it and they noticed that on average the the mutant virus had a higher higher infectious titer compared to the uh, to the not to the original yeah yeah but it's just i don't know but why do you I not like why do you not like what they did it's i don't it just seemed rushed and i don't i just don't know with viruses and i don't know if 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 certain experiments like that is a practice i don't know they didn't explain why they used the why did they selected this type of viruses mm. uh to engineer them with the with the with the spike protein I just, I just didn't know, I just didn't know why they make these choices. It was yeah. poorly explained. Yeah. I, uh, why did they use hex cells? Hex cells are like not. I don't think yeah. they're the best. Why did they, they use some sort of uh, long epithelial one. cells, maybe from airways yeah. or something like that? I think that would represent it a little bit better. Mm. You know. Yeah. As, yeah. Besides, hex cells, I think have sixty-four chromosomes. So, so what do you can really learn from them? Like, you know? yeah, yeah. I don't and, know. Yeah, but any well, so do they know why they think this um mutation or mutated version of the of the virus is more effective? Do they? So it it changes the once you have this one the new G six fourteen and the spike protein. It eliminates certain hydrogen bond that exist because the spike protein is is made from uh, two domains S one and S two. And I think with the original one, uh, they're like tightly held together via the uh, hydrogen bond. Yeah. And with the new mutation, this hydrogen bond is not existing. So there is it can like bind more flexibility, easier. maybe can bind easier. I think this is the direction they, uh, they, they're okay. going with. Yeah, I think this is, but they, yeah, again, this, this, they don't really know much. This, this paper kind of focused more on tracing the mutation uh, okay. and showing how does it affect the population. And they, they did some experimental tests, but I don't think it was like, I don't think there was the emphasis of that paper. Yeah. I think it was more, maybe so, more so to kind of prove their point. Yeah. Um, uh, they also did antibody neutralization assay. So they wanted to see if the new virus is more resistant to neutralization via the antibodies. Uh, but the antibody neutralization showed that the new virus is not more resistant to the antibodies, uh, okay. uh, but rather the opposite. So it's more readily neutralized by the ah. antibodies. Yeah, but you know, this is just one one study, and this is how they did it. This is why I'm not so happy with it. 
they cannot confirm that the antibodies they got from patients huh. were 100% produced in response to the new, uh, to the mutated SARS-CoV-2. Okay. So they a little in the gray area, they can't confirm this. And this neutralization study was only based on six individuals. Oh, okay. But I suppose it would be a great thing to say because usually when a virus makes a mutation, a new mutation, it has to sacrifice something yeah. else to gain a, a, like a more effective mm. mutation. So it would have been a great thing to sh- show like, oh, because it got more infectious, it was less severe. And I think this is definitely most probably why they wanted to do this. Um, yeah. But I, I think I think it was it very is... rushed. But I suppose it's still like an interesting thing to see. And I think I would have it like I not, not give out about what they did. I think that's still pretty interesting. No. I think it is fair to say that, that there is a new dominant uh type of SARS-CoV-2. I think this is evident with the number of increased cases we have. Yeah. We don't see increase in mortality. I I'm always I'm always hesitant to say that because I'm not sure in this. Obviously, yeah. it's not super deadly like we have would have expected, but there are people dying. But yeah, it's I don't think it's as as deadly as we have expected. I know in Poland there is huge spike in uh, coronavirus infections, and based on this study, is is it's completely the G the G614. Like when I'm looking at the graphs they have in the paper, Poland is like all G614. Mm. Um, Netherlands G614. They don't have any data from Ireland, but they have a UK data, and it shows there's a slight over there's slight the slight majority of G614 over D614. Mm. So I think this this is the the dominant form now across the Europe mm. and states and Asia, and um, yeah, we just it's just it's just it's just it's just interesting because you can't it's really hard to make the conclusion because at the beginning everywhere shut down and now things are reopening and you could just be like oh people are more likely to be in close contact more than they were before so it's it's hard to just say oh it's all because of this uh, yeah more effective virus or is it just because maybe people are not more lax um so yeah it's kind of uh it's hard to make the con- a concrete conclusion because there's so many other f- factors i suppose and and look they only they only did it the spike protein and like spike there's there's many more yeah. proteins to uh, SARS-CoV-2 than the spike protein so we like what about the others they only investigated the spike protein and what i found interesting is that infectious infectiousness does and trans transmissibility are not the same so just because something is more infectious it doesn't mean it's gonna be yeah, spread like, more easily as well you that's, know that's so true so just because they say that this virus is more infectious, it means like it is more readily enters the cells. Yeah, but it doesn't mean they like if it doesn't if mean it's yeah. in the air. Like if it's more, is it more likely to be spread stay in the air or yeah, on surfaces yeah, yeah. or like easier yeah. to for a person to get it? Whereas what they're trying to seem to say is like if you do inhale it or come in contact with it, you're more likely to get infected. But to transmission yeah. doesn't mean. So I think this is a this is a nice paper to open. Uh, to open like gates more like doors to study uh to study this and get a little bit more insight into it yeah um yeah, that yeah was... but it, it was another nice ep- little epidemiological study so uh, it was just to just to tell you guys where you can find it uh it's, it was published in cell the title of the paper is tracking changes in sars-cov-2 spike 
evidence that D614G increases infectivity of the COVID-19 virus. Mm. And um, yeah, we're going to link it later in the, mm. uh, when we release the episode. Yeah, that's super interesting. Mm -hmm. I really think that was really cool um, yeah. to hear. And we'll be watching with, uh, with interest to see uh, if anything new comes out with this and they can make sure. any more concrete yes. claims. And um, what about the vaccines, Evan? Are we, are we cured? I hope we can be cured with the vaccines. So there's two main companies. I don't know companies, but main uh, organizations Pharma? that are uh, in phase three trials right now. It's the Moderna uh, mRNA vaccine and it's Oxford and AstraZeneca. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're in phase three. So we're hoping that they actually reckon uh, Pfizer is making one and they think they'll be... Uh, they reckon that there'll be FDA clearance by autumn. So awesome. there is okay. reasons to be optimistic, but um, I just wanted to really focus on the Moderna mRNA vaccine because I kind of heard stuff about maybe is there reasons to have be doubtful a little bit. I I'm like I I don't want to be cynical. I just want to be kind of skeptical <laughs> um, more about uh, how they're going about it. So, yeah, to try and distinguish mm -hmm. between the main vaccines being produced, there's one being made by, yeah, as I mentioned, the University of Oxford and AstraZeneca, which is a pharma group. And they're using the cold virus delivered this weakened piece of the new coronavirus to teach the body to attack the pathogen. They're using what? They're using a weakened piece of the, this new coronavirus. Okay. So it doesn't mm -hmm. like set off the immune system completely, but it kind of still elicits an immune response so that you, you can still fight it much more easier. Whereas the vaccines, yeah, produced by Moderna and by another partnership between Pfizer and this BioNTech, they rely on gene-based technology to deliver their COVID-19 fighting lessons. But again, it's very quickly to judge these vaccines based on preliminary data, with these data only testing effect efficacy and safety in small populations. And we still don't know if this will succeed in large pivotal studies and if it will stimulate the antibodies and for how long in preventing the virus. Okay, so, so uh, it's tested on small population of people right now. Yeah. Are they, are they healthy individuals or are they yeah, it's, is it's being tested? Yeah, it's in healthy individuals primarily. In phase three is where you kind of look at the, the okay. patients that actually really do need it. Like I suppose older people right. you know, compromised and stuff like that. Mm. So they, now they're just looking at what is the immune response towards the vaccine. Yeah, the, yeah. And how safe it is as well. And how safe, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, the vaccines by Moderna, it's this mRNA vaccine. I think people have heard it. Um, mm -hmm. mRNA stands for messenger RNA. Uh, the best RNA. The best RNA. This is, yeah, what you're doing your PhD in. <laughs> yes. So I should be asking you what all about it, but... The MR, messenger RNA, it's used like as a transcript to, tr to transcribe proteins into production, basically. Yeah, um, it's like a recipe. Yeah, so what they're doing is with this mRNA vaccine, it programs the person's cells to make the protein, which will trigger the immune system to produce antibodies to the virus. And then that way you don't get a severe mm -hmm. infection. Um, and more than likely, these most of these vaccines are going to require a booster in order to help like give it a... Mm -hmm. that boosts the immune person's defense because i don't think one is enough i think you will need to get like two so like you get one you wait like six months or something and then you get yeah. another shot yeah okay or even i think the one in university of oxford they reckon it'll have to be like a year you'd have to get a booster a year okay 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, they said the ones based on the mRNA were actually the best at eliciting antibodies uh, that couldn't neutralize the virus. So I wanted to focus specifically on these ones, not the one that Oxford is ma- making. The one that University of Oxford and AstraZeneca are making, they were kind of, the investors kind of disappointed because it didn't elicit as much neutralizing antibodies as right. they wanted. Mm-hmm. However, uh, it did generate a more of a response with the virus killing T-cells like you had mentioned last episode okay. than the Moderna one. Mm-hmm. Um, so they reckon AstraZeneca and Oxford are saying that it's better at making the T-cells than maybe the Moderna one, which is just mainly um, the antibodies. antibodies. Yeah. Okay, so the okay. So um just to give more context, so the vaccine based on mRNA has never been approved before. This uh, is exciting. Yeah, so it's I suppose it's not that it could never be done. I think it's just that the other ways was also much more successful and it wouldn't cost as much money to do all this stuff. It's easier to walk the path that already has been walked yeah, exactly. than, rather than chopping through the bushes. Exactly. Brilliant metaphor there. So the vaccine did not give any life-threatening side effects or ones that required hospitalization in young healthy volunteers. Um, but I'm, I will go into the paper there in a bit. Um, but just to say there was some side effects, including fever, headaches and chills. But that is kind of to be expected. And now, like, since they've published the preliminary data, the shares of Moderna have, like, sure, like, a 300% since the start of the year just because of this new vaccine. They went uh, down. No, they've gone up, so they've soared. So they've is gone. that is that good for the company? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I think okay. many investors many investors are actually very wary of this because Moderna has never produced an approved drug or vaccine. Especially, they've never received FDA clearance before for anything they produce. So, this, oh, really? Yeah. And there is kind of questions about their ability to mass produce the vaccine if it gets improved. They are working with the U.S. government um, to help in producing it, but it's kind of like they don't have a big pharma company like Pfizer or in this AstraZeneca who can really mass produce the drug. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of be like, I wonder how will they go about this? Well, if it is if it is really really much better than everything else that that other companies have to offer, I'm sure they're 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 gonna find money to do it. Yeah. Is, uh, I don't even I don't know if you know, but like. Does it cost more to produce this mRNA or does it cost more to to create a weaker form I, of I, the virus? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I think either way, they're going to try and have it expensive. But yeah, so they, since they've published this preliminary data, they've gone into uh, phase three clinical trials and they're going to test it in around 30,000 subjects in the US. So Just in the US? Yeah. But they still don't know how long it would, yeah, they still don't know how long the vaccine would provide protection and whether it would only reduce the severity of the symptoms in certain people rather than sending off the infection. Well, if you can take someone off the ventilator um, due to this vaccine, uh, that's a huge success, I think. If you can decrease the mortality rate and if yeah. you can, if this vaccine, even if it's not like 100% protective, that it gives you 100% immunity and we will not get infected. But even if you're already sick and they give you the vaccine and you're going to get that much better that can they can take you off the, the, the ICU units. So, you know, that would kind of elevate a little bit stress on the hospital uh, yeah. equipment and stuff like that. It, I, think, I think this is a, a positive thing as well, you know? Yeah, definitely. Is, is yeah, so as I mentioned, the US government is aiding in the development of Moderna's vaccine project with almost half a billion dollars in funding. 
And it's one of the four, five drug companies that are part of the US government's so-called Operation Warp Spread in vaccine development. And the other four being Pfizer, Merck, uh, Merck & Co, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. So US government is paying money for uh, to help developing these vaccines. Yeah. If you've watched maybe, uh, maybe if that's you've... why they want uh, Bill Gates to pay money to the National Treasury for buying TikTok because they're running short and they need money to sponsorship uh, the research. It's all Solved. linked. But the the yeah, if you watch any of his press conferences, he mentions a vaccine production every day. So I think he just definitely wants to say like we're putting loads of money in it. I don't think we can take anything that he says uh, just for its face value. Yeah. But the point of contention is that yeah, these four other companies, they're big pharma players who've huge experience in conducting and running large-scale trials. Whereas Moderna, it's a young biotech company with, they reckon, a lack of, almost lack of staff and expertise. So you're like, these four companies, we will understand, but this other Moderna kind of sticks out because it's getting huge amount of money but it's never ever produced anything so uh yeah you just have to wonder would they be are they capable of following through and what they're going to do yeah hopefully um and there has been some allegations i think this was in a uh wall street journal article um by the way if you ever <laughs> i had to look get look up this wall street journal article <laughs> for this when i was doing the research and they only let you sign up you have to sign up to read their papers and i was like yeah that's fine so you pay like a a euro or a dollar to look at the articles and and then when you want to like cancel it i went to try Mm -hmm. i was looking for ages couldn't find where to cancel and i googled it and they said oh you need to ring to cancel your subscription and i've heard people were like couldn't get through to cancel and all this stuff and i was like how does this happen still that you can sign up super easy, but then when you want to cancel, <laughs> you have to ring up the company. So, yeah, I don't endorse Wall Street Journal. I think super are you shady. Now, are you now like a subscriber of Wall Street Journal? Well, I'm subscriber for... T- I'm, yeah, well, I'm, it got, you get $1 for like, I think, until October. So I'm a subscriber till then, but I managed to get, <laughs> I managed to get out of it. Uh, it was just oh, okay. super complicated. Like okay. they have an option to actually cancel your subscription, but you have to like, do all these jump through all these hoops take do it okay but yeah any, you... anyways it was just like yeah it was just really annoying i just thought yeah <laughs> this is ridiculous um yeah but anyways there, there has been allegations that there has been arguments with the people working in moderna and with government scientists over the trial process and they have been delayed delivering their trial protocol and and have opposed experts advice on how to carry out the study uh, and Moderna has denied any wrongdoing, but there has been, they have admitted there has been differences in opinion with experts in the project. So, yeah, it's just interesting that they they might be doing things a little bit different and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, what was the results of this Moderna vaccine yeah. trial? Um, the 30,000 people tried. No, this is not, that hasn't done yet. This that is hasn't on, done yet. No, they only published this preliminary data in... Uh, when was it published? It was uh, July. Uh, oh, fourteenth of July. Sorry. So this still this is just, and this was only a preliminary report, and it was only uh in it was like a phase one trial, and it was a fa- yeah phase one dose escalation open label trial. So yeah, they knew what they were getting. The patients knew what they're getting. Right. 
and it was in 45 volunteers it was capable of inducing an immune response in all of the in all of the patients the yeah, they, antibody and the T cell response or did they just measure one uh they mo- measured both okay. so and then the primary objective was to evaluate the safety and the reactogenicity of a two dose vaccination schedule of mRNA this mRNA what they're mm-hmm. using given 28 days apart across five dosages in healthy adults so yeah they gave and it was a small like it's very small number 45 so 45 between three uh groups because it was basically increasing dosages Mm -hmm. they didn't have any like placebo or anything they just wanted to see what was their immune reaction in these uh these volunteer patients at different doses um yeah so the mRNA it was encoded with the stabilized perfusion of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein mm-hmm. um and the what they said it was there was no safety concerns but and that the antibodies levels produced was very optimistic so there is reasons to be optimistic the 100 it was a 100 mcg dose was able to elicit a high neutralizing antibody and a th1 skewed cd4 t cell response did which is they... was more favorable than those the higher the lower so dose so they thought mm-hmm. 100 mcg was the best uh, did they test it did they test it, these antibodies or did they just measure the t the teeters they they measured they looked at the antibody produced to see if it was neutralizing and then they looked at the cd4 t cell response was it igg mostly was it did they tell of the antibody yeah doesn't matter really it i i uh it was yeah it was igg it was an igg look they were looking at yeah and i was looking at the the group so there were 15 in each of the groups so it was 15 in the 25 microgram 100 15 in the 100 15 in the 250 microgram group Mm -hmm. and if you looked they broke it down like the the may the gender and the age and i was like oh mostly all of them were white people so they didn't have any <laughs> other races there it was a hundred percent white people in the lower percentage the lower group it's so 93 funny. in the higher group yeah and then the 73 in the middle um so i was like okay it doesn't really have a great uh race no. uh, spread and i was just listening to a science podcast yesterday and someone made the same remarks that most of the of the scientific studies and uh, breakthroughs are are based on the uh, white ma- white males. So and here modernness is tested mostly mostly in the white population. Yeah, yeah. So that was one thing. Yeah, they said so. They said they had no severe adverse events, but I still thought uh, that they had solicited systemic adverse events. I think it was like headache or fatigue or fever. It would be interesting to know what do they define as severe. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it does. Yeah, but anyways, they, what they said for the systemic adverse events, they were more common after the second vaccination. Um, and they occurred in 54% of the 25 milligram, microgram group, mm-hmm. 15 in all of the 15 in the 100 microgram group, and 14 uh, in the 20, 250 microgram group. In the 100 gram group that they're proceeding to the phase three trial, they all had some kind of solicited systemic event. And I just want to ask you, like, if you, what would be like for a vaccine, mm-hmm. if it was going to cause fever, if you got it, what would you mm-hmm. say would be acceptable percentage of people who got a fever that you'd be like, oh, that's fine. We wouldn't want to go higher than that. 
just because uh, I just want to see what if you think this is high. Because like this is something that people mm. need to think about. Because if this it causes like vaccines okay. are already so controversial, anyways, that if this causes a lot of fever, people are like, oh, I don't want to get it. I don't want to get a fever. So yeah, just wondering what you think. I think it would, for me, it would have to be like a really, really. If you, t- I'd say, let's say you take a hundred people. Yeah. And within the group of hundred people, two, two people. No, I'd say no more than five. So two to five percent. Two to five percent. Okay, interesting. So in the 100 microgram group, so they, these groups were only 15 people anyway, so they're so low. So six people got, I've had a fever and that's 40% of the group because it's such a low number. So 40% got a fever. Okay. Uh, and 57% got it in the higher group. Uh, and one of the person actually had a severe, it was like a maximum temperature of like 39.6, which was really high when they got the, yeah, the second vaccine. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I thought that was very high. Yeah, it's um, super high. So, and they were like, but they didn't really say, oh, that's, they were like, that seems fine. But I was like, I don't know if that's, that seems like a lot of people got a fever and I don't think that's, is that acceptable? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You said 40%. 40% of the people got a, had a fever in this That's small population. And like, this is in, in 15 people. So if it's, it's hard to, you, they still have to do this now in a large population, but yeah, see, that's the thing. If, if you, you say... extrapolate that, like 30,000, what's 40% of 30,000, uh, if this is what they're using and that's yeah. like a lot, that's nearly just under 15,000 people. Yeah. So yeah it'd be interesting to see if this is still a very common thing to see uh, side effect to the sea in, well, the, could in be, the large could be, red pit could be the case that you are very very unlucky and you just picked the wrong group of people that that <laughs> developed but no this is a phase one they're definitely picking the most healthiest people so yeah it was just no. it just it just i think because the, the the immune response was super promising i think this is what they're using to like okay we'll just go into phase three and do the testing but that's what they're and i think i was very impressed by the immune responses because they were able to very high uh antibody producing and the T C D T four t cell response and mm-hmm. but yeah it's still um it's still so early and but, i just think i i really think people should be like okay what's unacceptable like you were saying i couldn't believe you were like two to five percent and uh they were like 10 times that so uh yeah. it's going to be interesting to see will people be happy will be yeah will people be happy to accept this yeah. kind i don't of really risk. know what i'm talking about so this is what seems right to me i just i would imagine if 40 if if 40 percent of people would get an adverse reaction to the vaccine that well no it wasn't adverse it was just a fever like this is just one of the things but they and then at the same time they said like yeah all all 15 in the 100 microgram group had a a solicited systemic adverse event after the second vaccine so yeah uh, well let's wait and see what how is how the 30,000 people yeah, gonna yeah respond to it yeah. and look maybe maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe i can live with fever maybe i can take a vaccine and have a little fever for a day and then and then it pa- and then it goes off maybe maybe they are right maybe people will not be mm. you know let us know what you think well, if you think uh we're being yeah. very overly cautious or is this something you would be happy with yeah yeah i don't know 
it's nice to see that uh, the T cells are responsive to the vaccine because that kind of confirms what what people what the other scientists have seen mm, yeah uh kind of uh what happens within the inside the body when yeah. the when they get infected so. it's re- i think it was really nice what you talked about last week as well it kind of gives uh people understanding that we have to be really looking at t-cells as well and that it is plays an important role so yeah. um, that's pretty cool yeah so that was all i wanted to say uh, yeah. on that um so yeah. first mrna vaccine big yeah thing. exciting um but I hope either way. I just hope something can be can be developed that is s- somewhat safe and yeah um, works out. And tell us about the fever. Are you are you are you down <laughs> with the fever or are you not okay with the fever? Ah, uh, yeah. It's it's hard one to say, isn't it? Yeah. Um. Like, uh, yeah. I don't know. I I would I won't say anything until the the large scale study is done i just mm. i'm going to be diplomatic like that <laughs> okay i see i see your diplomacy hello after the break we have our exciting new guest on his name is john and he's engineer and uh, he's gonna tell us all about the mars 2020 and the perseverance rover how are you john i'm good thanks for having me no problem we are very exciting to have our very first guest and uh Maybe, uh, yeah, just tell us, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself or do you want to jump straight into the Mars stuff? Uh, yeah, I don't mind. Um, so about myself, I'm an engineer, uh, not in the space space, <laughs> actually, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's just a it's massive interest of mine. I work in fiber optics, uh, so nothing, okay. nothing to do with life sciences. Um, I do have an interest in biology, big fan of the podcast, actually. So um, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think I think it's fair to say that you're the the the, the creator of the jingle at the start of the podcast, yep. which we are very very grateful for, and uh, you've been with us from the start. Yeah, actually, yeah. So my my fingerprint has been on this from from the very <laughs> first. I I don't think the jingle was in the trailer. Maybe it was, but uh, it was in the first episode anyway. So yeah, I've already made my mark. Yeah, thank you, man. We owe John a lot of thanks because he did help us set up the podcast. So. And when he wanted to be a guest on, we kind of felt a bit uh, like we owed him a chance. We felt know. happy, Evan. We felt happy. Anyways, yeah, that's what we owe John a lot of thanks for helping us set it up. And yeah. we said we owed him at least a guest spot on our podcast. So, Okay, well, I'm sure there'll be many more appearances of John here. Uh, he's a lovely chap. He has a lovely personality, lovely face. Okay, good to hear. Anyway, I was trying to I was trying to look up the uh, rover. I think we can can we start with the rover, or did you want to start with something else, John? Yeah, I was going to kind of give more of a round yeah, of, for it. more of a rounded discussion about what's going on with Mars right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mars is nothing really <laughs> going on with Mars itself. It's just sitting there out in space. <laughs> but the the main reason it's kind of in the news. If anyone even listening to mainstream news um, probably heard in the last month or so, the end of July. Um, beginning of August was quite a lot of activity to do with Mars and launches to Mars so all of these missions going to Mars why are they all going right now in 2020 in July August time Mm -hmm. why not spread them out a bit Um, why didn't they go last year why don't they go next year Um, well there there are a few considerations when planning a mission to another planet in this case Mars with Mars, there's, a line, there's an alignment between Earth and Mars every two years, 
where Earth and Mars are on the same side of the sun. Um, this alignment allows for shorter and a fuel efficient trip. Um, the fuel efficiency or the energy efficiency is calculated using something called a pork chop plot. So if you ever hear about pork chops and science <laughs> in the same sentence, it's not crazy. It's, okay. it's actually the thing. Um, so this plot will give you, uh, for a given launch date, it will show you the arrival date and then the relative energy efficiency. So with these large spacecraft and large payloads, you don't want to bring more fuel that could be taken up by science instead you know you want to just expend the least amount of energy mm. um that is needed to get it there uh you know we're talking about a rover that's the size of an suv and a large suv at that uh with a lot of scientific equipment on it so <laughs> they're not light at all no. so they really need to look for the most uh efficient way of getting there um and another thing i, w- I would just like to mention as well um when it comes to getting something to mars so when people think of getting to another planet or getting to space, uh, because Mars is close to us right now, we don't just hop over to it. That's not why the missions all launched at once or at this time of year. Um, we want this spacecraft to escape Earth's gravity, uh, then go into an orbit around the sun and fall towards Mars's orbit. Like imagine a plane is flying overhead and you want to throw a ball and have someone in the plane catch it. You don't throw the ball when the plane is over your head and you don't throw it at the plane. Right you throw the ball in the air such that, you know, the ball will be in the same place as the plane when the plane is in the same place as the ball. Uh, so, you know, you'll throw it beforehand, um, let the ball and the plane reach the same place at once, and then, you know, the guy in the plane will catch it. <laughs> so like this, um, we don't aim at Mars itself. We aim for an orbit that will intersect where Mars will be at the time the spacecraft is also there. Um, so just something to consider as well when we're trying to get to another planet. So this summer, three major missions were launched to Mars by three different space agencies. Um, mm-hmm. The first one that went out, I think this is in chronological order, um, if I have my facts correct, uh, was launched by, the first one was launched by the Emirates, so United Arab Emirates. The Emirates Mars mission is sending an orbiter to Mars, uh, not a rover. Um, this will be a satellite around Mars, you know, conducting various observations mm-hmm. on the planet. Okay. So uh, they send it just to kind of get a little bit better understanding of like uh, what kind of weather is there or just the topography of the planet or are they looking for aliens? Yeah, as far as I understand, the Emirates Mars mission's main goal is to understand weather patterns on Mars. Um right maybe the climate observing seasonal activities. Mm-hmm. And I think it's all, it, this all data has been collected towards the final end of like sending people there. So we just want to know as much as there's possible to know about Mars to make it as safe as possible. Yeah, well, there's a lot to be said about understanding another planet for the sake of it anyway, even without sending people there. But yes, it will. That's true. It will absolutely help, um, you know, help us towards mm-hmm. the goal of getting people to Mars because, you know, we need to understand the place better. Uh, so that, you know, they can develop appropriate systems to keep people safe. Sure. So we have the Emirates Mars mission. What's the next one? Yeah, so the next one was the Tianwen-1 mission. Um, this is from China. This consists of an orbiter, like the Emirates Mars mission, an orbiter that will orbit mm-hmm. the planet, and a rover, which will land. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, but they send the orbiter and the, and the rover. 
And the last one is the US of A. Yeah. Kind of ending the this year's Mars activities with a bang. Um, uh, as always, NASA, you know, pulling off a massive feat, as they always do. Mm. You know, they like to cap things off, you know, be the biggest sure. and best. Uh, but in all seriousness, um, this is quite an exciting mission. Um, so people might remember around about 10 years ago, maybe less, about eight years ago, the Curiosity rover was launched. Yes. Very similar mission this time, uh, with a few differences. So Curiosity is still on on Mars collecting data and working, or is it out of uh, commission? Yeah, it's still there. Um, it has passed its original, um, I think, the object. You know, the original time that mm-hmm. was planned to you know collect science, conduct its activities. This has been quite common with uh, with rovers. You know, they have a planned time of maybe a few months. That it's going to operate on the planet, but this has been in right. operation for a number of years now, and it's still going. Uh, there is some oh, damage to the to the rover, like on the wheels, but uh, it's still going. Can they have? Can they actually, like, do they have a live feed of of the rover from the Mars? Is can or do they just drop it there and then just let it go? So because Mars is so far away, on average, it takes about nineteen minutes, I believe, for uh, information to come back from Mars. Okay. So you wouldn't be able to control it like a like a remote control car or a robot. Right. Um, you have to feed it commands like well scripted and well planned out. Um, you know, they can have it uh, complete some activities and then wait for the feedback, see if that went well before, you know, continuing the next step. It's quite slow, um, but they do plan it out quite well. And if they want it to travel somewhere, they can, you know, have images uh, mm. determine where they want to go and, you know, Mm-hmm. Based on the risks involved, they can uh, let it carry out a script of its own. But I, I just wanted to talk uh, a little bit more about what the Mars 2020 mission is. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it does have a rover like the Curiosity rover, but it's called Perseverance this time. That's a very nice name. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess Mar- uh, NASA wants to persevere through all these crazy times. Exactly. But uh, yeah. it's quite similar to the Curio- Curiosity rover. Um, in that mm-hmm. they both rely on a propulsive landing. So what does this mean? When rovers used to be sent, they would use parachutes and then often they would land in a big kind of blow up, like what looks like a beach ball. They would just bounce off the okay. surface and then it would deflate and they'd roll out. Uh, so now they're using a thing called a sky crane. It's like a drone, but the propellers are actually rockets. So <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah. So it lands with well it doesn't land but it um it slows down with parachutes once it enters the mm-hmm. Mars Mars's atmosphere. And then this sky crane fires its rockets like a drone, stays very still in the air and lowers the the rover to the surface using kind of a winch. And then once the winch detaches, it flies off and crashes at a safe distance uh, away from, to not damage the rover. Okay, yeah. that's very smart. So I would presume they have a, because of they have this propulsion system in place, it kind of, it can narrow down the accuracy of where they want the rover to land it, right? Rather than just dropping it. Yeah, it is automated. So once it's kind of reached its whatever altitude it's at, it's going to, you know, drop the rover there. But it, it's, the landing spot is planned before that. Um, so the way the... The way in which they aim the rocket towards Mars, the way in which it enters, that will all determine the, the you know, the actual mm-hmm. landing site. Uh, so another similarity with Curiosity is that they both use 
radioisotope uh, thermoelectric generators instead of solar panels. This is quite useful on Mars because there are a lot of dust or sandstorms on Mars. And what do they? What does this? What do they use that for? And like, and is that the energy source, the fuel? Yeah, a radioisotope thermoelectric generator uses a thermocouple to convert heat to electricity. The source right. of the heat is a. You see, it's a radioactive compound. Right. And you can't just switch that mm-hmm. off. It's just always generating heat. Okay. And the rover, in a very specific engineered way, uses this to create energy for itself and move across the planet. Yeah. Exactly. And, okay. Are you, like, so what are, why, why is there another rover sent there? Like, what, like, why, why the curiosity is not enough? What is, what is different about this mission compared to what they have done before and yeah, what are you most excited from the engineer point of view when you look at this new Perseverance rover? Yeah, so it yeah it does have those similarities, you know, the way it lands and mm-hmm. it actually looks quite similar as well. Um, but it also carries with it a helicopter called Ingenuity. Um, <laughs> so this helicopter, it's it's small, it's like a drone, but it's not. It's technically a helicopter because it uses uh, you know helicopter blades okay Um, so this the goal of the helicopter is it's a technology demonstration um it's it will be the first uh powered flight on another planet um that is cool yeah so it'll be able to fly around and image the landscape hopefully it'll be able to image the perseverance rover itself from above so we've Mm -hmm. never before been able to see a rover you know uh just sitting there on the planet you know we've had images from taken from rovers you know looking out but we've never yeah, actually yeah. seen you know like a third person view of a rover so i think that would be pretty cool have have the rovers because there's more than just curiosity on the mars right there's there are, yeah, there are other have they over have things. they ever met each other no they've uh they've all you know landed in in different spots in so different this is because spots. of the scientific um this is a scientific reason you know by diversifying the places in which they land they get more diverse samples to test okay um and then you also have the risk of when they land uh you want to have quite an open area you don't really want anything else to be there you want it to be quite a safe landing or to reduce the risk really so if you had the perseverance rover landing near where curiosity is okay um, once that sky crane detaches it flies off and crashes um you know you don't don't want want it to fly off and crash into curiosity (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Do you know roughly how much it costed to build uh, Perseverance? I don't. I do know, however, that they were mm-hmm. able to use some um, uh, spare parts from Curiosity. Um, a lot of the research and development that went into Curiosity would have been able to be reused in Perseverance. You know, the way like the chassis is quite similar. The wheels the w- are similar, but they're improved. So they use... Um, they're i think they're you know wider they've some different dimensions so okay they were able to you know reuse the Mm r&d a lot of the r&d costs right so i don't want to say how much it was but um i would imagine they made some cost savings in certain areas that's nice and you mentioned that it will collect samples but like how the samples gonna be tested (laughs) yeah so like the curiosity which 
is kind of like a, it's a remote lab in itself. So oh. curiosity and perse- perseverance, they both have drills, really advanced drills on them where they're able to identify um, the, what is in front of them, what the surface might consist of by just zapping it with a laser um, and then analyzing. With the laser? Mm-hmm. So they first zap it, they try and determine what's in front. Is this worth drilling into? Um, then they'll drill in, take the sample up into the rover, and then they have a number of scientific instruments on board. So on Perseverance, first is the planetary instrument for X-ray lithochemistry. Um, so this is an X-ray fluorescent spectrometer. A radar imager for Mars's subsurface experiment. So this is a ground-penetrating radar. They'll be able to, you yeah. know, see what's, what's underground, mm-hmm. uh, maybe detect sources of water. Oh, wow. Because the, wa- the water used to be on Mars, right? Yeah, and there's, well, there's still water on Mars um, at the poles in the form of uh, water ice. Oh. There's potentially water under the surface. Hopefully the, the, the ground penetrating radar might be able to see. So if the radar sees that, then they might say, okay, you know, this is a good place to drill and to test. There are a few more instruments on it. Tell me about them. Well, I could tell you more about where the rover will land. So it's going to land in the Jezero, mm-hmm. Jezero crater. Um, okay. Specifically at what looks like might have been um, a, a river delta. And you guys, being biologists or in the area of biology, might understand better than me that a delta is a good place for life. Yeah. You want to look for that sweet, sweet bacterial life in the water. Yeah. So NASA scientists reckon that this is a good place to aim for, um, that there might be, you know, a lot of good places to take samples from. I was watching, um, I was watching a YouTube clip to prepare myself for this, and uh, I learned that this crater was created because there was some foreign mass hit planet of the Mars and created that massive crater. Mm-hmm. So this is my five cents into this space discussion. <laughs> Uh, and uh, John, do you know anything about this thing they have on the rover that is supposed to produce oxygen? Yeah, so there's the Mars Oxygen ISRU experiment, or MOXIE. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, so an exploration technology investigation that will produce a small amount of oxygen, a small-scale experiment of what they might want to scale up when they send humans, like what they do on the ISS, you know, they... Mm-hmm. They pull the, the, the breathable oxygen out of the carbon dioxide that they've breathed out. Um, I guess they want to test this on Mars as well to kind of a proof of concept. These are all um, things they need to prove really before they send, they, before they send humans to show mm. that it's safe or, you know, reduce the risks again. Uh, it's always about re- reducing risk. That's the first of its time when they trying to do something like that, uh, some sort of artificial production of oxygen on mm-hmm. the foreign planet yeah wow that's that's this is what's blowing my mind you know this is crazy people like people getting excited over dogs on instagram and we're doing this stuff you know mm-hmm. what i mean like this is crazy i would yeah. would you like to go to mars if it's they're gonna be like we're sending a hundred people and we and we need an expert in optic fibers <laughs> probably not uh, okay <laughs> yeah now i understand that it would be really cool i respect anyone who would go by me saying i wouldn't go right now doesn't mean i don't think it's a good idea to go uh i just think me personally um i'm happy enough uh to wait for you know you know you know the way uh when a new phone comes out the people who buy the first one 
they're right. often the ones that experience you know the 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 worst features the crashes. The, yeah it's all broken uh i right. think i'll wait for the, those guys so i can go and have a great time there just wanted to mention a, another thing so this is kind of a big deal as well so the perseverance rover has that drill and has the ability to collect samples as i mentioned mm-hmm. uh curiosity did this as well but with per- perseverance it has the ability to store and deploy a cache of samples in tubes leave them on the surface of mars drive away just leave the sur- the samples there and it is proposed in collaboration with the european space agency that there will be subsequent missions over the next decade that will include so it's a couple of missions mm-hmm. first to send a rover that will retrieve those samples then the rover will bring those samples to an ascent mission so this would be something that lands on the surface and has the capability to collect the uh, the samples from the the rover mm-hmm. launch those samples into orbit again around mars rendezvous with a satellite that's already orbiting mars and then launch the samples back to earth um they can do that so not right now they can't but it's in development and over the next couple of years i'm sure we'll hear some news um about the developments in that it's all very much in the early stages but the first step of this is perseverance being on the planet and its ability to drop the samples there uh you know there's nobody on mars to take those samples no. so <laughs> hopefully, hopefully so they'll just be sitting there until we have there will be um, a there'll be surprise if they've gone missing yeah but in terms of scientific return on investment this is massive because now you know you guys can probably explain better why it's a good idea to bring samples back you know they have all these advanced you know spectrometers uh and you know equipment on the rover but maybe you can tell me why is it a better idea to bring the samples back what could you do on earth with those samples that you might be able to do on the rover what kind of science could you return i think i think as much as advanced this rover is I, it doesn't have the capacity of what a proper physics labs or chemistry lab would have in the kind of a in the setting where you can build the lab inside the building and the processing power of the produced information uh what is available on the rover versus what is available in the lab would be much greater and as much as we appreciate the work of machines and computers like you still would want to have this human touch where you can you observe the data you analyze it and you put it in the greater perspective um so if it would be possible to get these get these samples from the from the surface of the mars to to the people it's it's huge because then and also now that it comes to my mind okay perseverance is only like one instrument doing this if you will be able to collaborate between different institutes and get other people other expert different expertise coming in you have like astrobiologists at this i think I, I, there's like a field of science called astrobiology where you have people trained to kind of try to identify living organisms outside of earth like you get this you get the, all of these scientists from different fields uh different different expertises and you just feed into each other you create this massive network of brains and it's just at this point and can just generate more than a simple instrument can on its own regardless of how fascinating and advanced in its uh design it is i think you still you still need that uh, the the capacity of of what we have on earth and the brain power that we have on earth and as you said there is there is some delay in communication between what the 
what it's happening on the Mars and what we can see on Earth. So, you know, there is, you could also make a speculation that you're missing some information or some data because of this delay. I don't know, but I just think, I just think having your own hands on it and doing the experiments and being able to brainstorm on the spot and quickly send results to the other centers. It's uh, I think this is, this is how the science could be done the best, but yeah, just, I'm still trying to comprehend that we can get these samples onto, onto the earth. You can't simulate a real life laboratory on another planet. It's just so much more easier when you actually have it in on earth in a proper laboratory. And yeah, as you said, Tom, just to be able to collaborate with loads of different scientists who have different like interests in analyzing the, the samples. So yeah, that's why I would think it would be super important to have it, be able to do the analysis at yeah. home in Earth rather than on a machine over in Mars. So Yeah, it would be even cooler if we could start bringing stuff over to Mars. And yeah, but this is like probably 100 years into the future. And was space... I just, w- mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to mention something about that. Another good thing about having those samples come back is... You know, the rover, hopefully not, but the rover might run into some difficulty where it just can't um, operate its instruments anymore in maybe five years. But those samples will be there for a long time. We can, you know, well, NASA and ESA can go over and get those samples and bring them back and analyze them for as long as they want. Uh, You know, those samples will be in hand, um, you know, preserved, just like the moon rocks that came back. Uh, So even long after the perseverance rover has retired um we'll still have those samples uh to be able to gather science from sure no that's a that's a very good point uh every time ever, ever since you said that the rover has the drills i keep thinking about armageddon you know that movie with michael bay when armageddon yeah when they send the drill yeah yeah that's what i keep thinking about but <laughs> maybe yeah maybe they were inspired by uh michael bay yeah i don't know why they didn't just send um what was it? Oil, oil drillers. Oil drillers. Yeah, exactly. Oil drillers to Mars. Just train them instead of building a, a rover. Is uh, is SpaceX or Elon Musk involved in this at all, or does he is doing something completely independent of Mars twenty twenty? As far as the Mars twenty twenty mission goes, SpaceX isn't involved. They're heavily involved with NASA, though, in other endeavors like, uh, uh, you know, the the ISS crew missions, mm-hmm. um, going to the moon, um. They have been awarded a contract from NASA to send a lander to the moon, um, along with some other private companies. Uh, SpaceX are working on their own method of getting to Mars as well. I'm sure through their collaboration with NASA, NASA are going to jump on board as well with whatever SpaceX is doing if they have something, if they have something compelling uh, with regards to Mars. You know, maybe SpaceX will be a little bit quicker. Maybe, they, maybe they'll come up with a better idea than NASA and the ESA will to retrieve those samples. Who knows? But um, whatever, whatever, about, whatever SpaceX and NASA are doing, it's all very exciting. A lot of developments right now in the space. Space. <laughs> sure. Well, it's all, uh, it's all very interesting and it's way over my head. This is the reason I study uh, genetics and not engineering or space engineering. Because... <laughs> It's so hard. Well, who who knows? You know, in 10 years or 15 years when those samples come back, you guys might be working on them. 
might be looking for microorganisms I, uh, yeah i was uh, when i was watching that video clip on uh, youtube about uh, mars 2020 and the perseverance all of the scientists are like very wearing well not scientists all of the engineers are wearing like uh you know the codes but like they're super protective against everything and um it would to my understanding it was actually one of the reasons was to prevent introduction of certain like microbes or anything that is could it could be from earth and then when it's gonna land on the mars you don't want to like introduce a foreign species even if it's a bacteria or anything like that into into the mars because you know you just don't, yeah you don't want to like contaminate the planet with with uh, exactly with stuff like that just like when you guys have a control when you're testing for something in a sample they need to ensure that they haven't brought anything with them so that when they've tested the sample there's absolutely no possibility that they're actually finding a microorganism or a bacteria that they just brought from um florida where they launched from <laughs> everything is in florida that's where the subtle dig at florida there yeah and also nba bubble is in florida so yeah thanks for having me on to talk a little bit about something that isn't um molecular biology <laughs> exactly thanks Joe. related related to biology yes. but uh yeah hopefully you enjoyed it thanks for giving some light on the mars 2020 and uh how exciting and complicated endeavor it is to uh to get there uh we sure gonna follow this and um when we're gonna find life on mars john we would like to have your commentary on it what is your yeah exactly what is your take here's my prediction i think we will have a solid confirmation within 10 years okay we're gonna hold you accountable to this <laughs> yeah thanks again for that john um i was so excited to have you on i really couldn't ask that much questions so that's why i let tom take the lead yeah. next time i'm gonna i'm gonna stay put but yeah we hopefully have a few more guests on if you think we should have a guest on for certain other areas please let us know at our instagram twitter or email us at skeptically inclined at gmail.com again skeptically spelled with a c and yeah i hope you enjoyed that today's episode yeah it was a lot of fun it was and um i'm sure if john's gonna find any other subject within the field of engineer interesting we would be very welcome to come back again and talk about it and on that note thanks again for listening we'll catch you again again stay skeptical get in touch and yes thanks again for listening yeah stay skeptical bye bye